Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, that's, um, we're reminded of that in our study this morning in Sunday school and then in that song that um, your love lifted us and that you still save by Christ. <clears throat> pray that you would um, speak to us by your spirit and bring your word alive that our needs and the things that we need to be challenged with or reminded of or that that would happen as we look into your word here today. Lord Jesus, in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for those songs today, Steve. I think they were fitting. I didn't write them down, so I'm not going to remember all the phrases, but it kind of stood out to me. So I want to go back to Nehemiah and... The word that stuck out to me in the Sunday school lesson was restore. Um, that's what Nehemiah was doing. And we are called to, um, many times in our lives, there's a challenge in front of us. There's a restoration that needs to happen. And we don't know what to do with it. Um, it's too big for us. And that's what we'll see. I don't, we don't, as we look at Nehemiah, I don't really pick up he never whines or complains about the large job in front of him, but I'm sure that it felt huge. Um, and so in chapter 2, if we remind, in December, when I spoke on kind of an introduction to Nehemiah, you'll remember that Nehemiah had never lived in Jerusalem. The exile had happened before he was born. He was living in exile. And so this was a place that he heard stories about. But he had never been there. At least that's my impression as I was looking at the years and putting that together last time. But many times we face things, a restoration that needs to happen, and we've never been there. We were not the ones that were involved in the conflict or in the captivity, and yet here we are. There's God's kingdom, God's name is being um, maligned because of what happened years ago. And Nehemiah steps up to the plate and says, because of God, I believe I'm supposed to do something about this. So... <clears throat> He was, and as we look at in chapter 2 here, in verse 1, <coughs> we get a little bit of a picture, I think, of who Nehemiah um, was before we see him here. And if you remember, the key word in the book of Nehemiah is so, um, 32 times. Um, and I didn't go back and look up some of the, but Nehemiah, you know, so he did this, so he did that. He was a man of action. He was not a, a man of many words. I think if he was a man of many words, maybe we would have known how he felt through some of this. And we do see that sometimes when he's dealing with sin later on. We do see how he felt about that. I came across the quote, I would not give much for your religion unless it can be seen. Nehemiah, Nehemiah's religion, his belief in God could be seen. 
I would not give much for your religion unless it can be seen. I know some people's religion is heard of, but give me the man whose religion is seen. Lamps do not talk, but shine. Lamps do not talk, but shine. We are the light of the world. And with Christ in us, people will see that. There's a shining that happens. Brethren, do something. Do something, do something. This is Charles Spurgeon. While societies and unions make constitutions, let us win souls. I pray you, be men of action, all of you. Get to work and quit yourselves like men. Old Suvorov's idea of war is mine. Forward and strike, no theory, attack. Form a column, charge bayonets. Plunge into the, en- into the center of the enemy. Our aim is to win souls, and this we are not to talk about, but to do in the power of God. This was Nehemiah. He was a man of action. Let's press forward. I've heard it said in the midst of battle, often um, what has been taught is forgotten and chaos ensues. And at that point, I think that's, we can sometimes find ourselves feeling in the chaos of the battle of life And what do we do next? And that's the challenge here is, what am I here for? My aim is to win souls. That's as I was opening with this this quote was on my mind, and then Steve led the song. I was thinking deep in sin, that last verse, souls in danger look above. Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. Um, and to think as we're looking at those passages in Sunday school, the challenge that we often face, and maybe always face in relationships, is we don't expect that God can change people. I wanted to ask that question in Sunday school. But do we believe that God still changes people? Because we can get cynical, we can get um, distrustful, Um, A lot of things get in the way when someone is truly changed and we don't give them the space for that. Do I believe that Jesus still changes people? Um, And we face that. And I'm thinking of Nehemiah pressing ahead and restoring. I'm thinking, you know, this was a physical reality in his day. There There were stones that needed to be piled back up. There were gates that had to be hung. There was a city to be rebuilt. It had been burned down. For us today, we think of this in spiritual terms. There are relationships that are broken down. There are um, friendships that have burned to the ground. There are um, the thing that keeps the enemy out is down. We need to raise that up. And I want to talk about that a little bit today. What is it that, what, it, what does it mean to put up a guard so that the enemy just can't run into my life whenever he jolly well pleases? And I don't know that I have all the answer written on paper, but that's the question that's going through my mind. And I want to look at some scriptures. 
in regards to that. Two things that have been on my mind the last... Um, well, before I get to that, I want to look at the key verses in Nehemiah. Remind us, chapter 1, verse 4, Nehemiah said he wept, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed because the city of God was broken down. So that's a key verse in Nehemiah and a challenge for us, I believe, in the spiritual warfare today. And then in chapter 6, verse 3, the enemy is seeking to distract him. And he says, I am doing a great work. Are my hands involved in doing a great work? Am I committed to that? Or have I allowed the enemy to distract me? And I'm sitting down in the plains of Ono, talking with them and trying to convince them that I'm okay. So two key verses in Nehemiah. Nehemiah wept, mourned, fasted, and prayed, and he responded to the enemy when he was in the midst of the great work. He said, I am in the rebuilding, restoring, and that is a great work. He said, I am doing a great work. Two things that have been on my mind that I felt impressed on me lately. Uh, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. For thine is the kingdom the power, and the glory forever. In the midst of the battle, in the midst of the rebuilding, in the midst of um, seeking God's will. I mean, I wonder about Nehemiah back before he even talked to the king about this. Um, it does say that he, he was afraid to bring this up. I mean, the king could kill him. And when God lays something on our hearts, we can feel feel that, what do I do with this? This could be the end. This could be the end. You need to remember, it's about his kingdom. Nehemiah knew that. And we'll see it in chapter 2, that he knew the power. It was God that would make it successful. It wasn't him. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and it was for God's glory. So that's one thing. The other, there was um, probably a week ago, I don't remember exactly, one night that I kept waking up. And every time I woke up, it kept getting drilled in my mind that the battle is spiritual. The battle is spiritual. I don't know how many times that night that that phrase, and I look back on it the next morning, I thought, I think that was the Holy Spirit trying to get a point across to me. Um, the one verse in Second Thessalonians today in Sunday school said don't treat them as an enemy right people are not our enemies the battle is spiritual we have a spiritual enemy and so then we end up spending and wasting our strength and our time thinking about people and how to fix something when really it's the enemy just keeping us going in circles. Your family, your um, brothers and sisters are not your enemy. Your wife is not your enemy. Your, um, sometimes I tease her and call her my sister. <laughs> well, she is. She's my sister in Christ, right? I have some fun with that one sometimes, but... 
How you doing, sister? <laughs> but I think that's what God was reminding me of. The battle is spiritual, and we need to remember that. Okay, now jumping into chapter 2 of Nehemiah. <clears throat> In the first verse, it says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. And then I was sore afraid. <clears throat> I think the king would have various reasons for watching um, Nehemiah's face. If someone could get the cupbearer on their side and they wanted to assassinate the king, it'd be an easy thing. Um, so Nehemiah was a trusted man of character. The king trusted him with his life. <clears throat> there were kings that were assassinated that way. They'd put a little bit of poison in their drink and they'd carry it to the king. And the cupbearer was a part of the conspiracy, and so he didn't taste it first. Or somehow he got around that. I would think the king would make him taste it in his presence, but there were some times when that happened. Nehemiah was a trusted man. He had a very trusted position, and now he's looking sad in the king's presence. I had to think, we don't like to look sad, do we? We don't like to carry a burden Nehemiah had a burden, and he goes on to share that with the king then. Uh, verse 3, Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Have you ever had it happen where you'd say, you know what, I wish I could go back to whatever place it is where you have good memories from, and I wish I could live there again. That was my favorite time of life. And um, I have a place like that. And if I go back there right now, I think there's one family that lives there, and they're kind of upkeeping the place, but it's owned by someone else, and they're just kind of caretakers, and there's nothing happening there anymore, not much of anything. Sometimes there's a conference there, you know, but not busy like it was when I was a boy. And so it would not be, and plus, I was 12 then, and now I'm 55. So if I go back there now, I would not look at it like a 12-year-old. And so it wouldn't look the same. But doesn't that happen? The Lord, the burdens that we carry now, the work that we have to do, do you sometimes say, I wish I could go back to that spot in my life where it was easy, and I felt good, and... You know, whatever the reasons are. But you know what? We can't. We can't go back. You know, here Nehemiah was carrying a burden, and the people around him could see that. They noticed it. His burden was to restore. To restore, to build houses and walls and gates. And he was a cupbearer. I think we talked about this last time. He was not even a laborer. He wasn't a carpenter. He wasn't a stonemason. And we're going to face things in life 
where God gives us a burden for something that we have no experience at. But he's calling us to step into that. And we see him casting a vision then as he gets over to Jerusalem and leading the people. But where did Nehemiah start? How did, how did this burden come about? And I think we see that mentioned it already in that key verse in chapter 1. It said in verse 4, And it came to pass when I heard these words. So he had people came back from Jerusalem and told him what was happening there in the sad state of affairs. And he said, When I heard about this, I sat down and wept and mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So he heard the stories and he took it to the Lord. When we hear stories, the first place we should take it is to the Lord in prayer, in prayer. And so I think that's, and then, you know, many times we can just leave it there and say, well, I prayed about it. I don't know what to do about it. I'll just go be happy before the king again. But that didn't happen here for Nehemiah. That burden stayed. I was reminded of a number of years ago, I had a um, prayer journal for a page or three or four pages for each day of the week. And I got away from that. I didn't do it for a number of years. And I felt that um, I needed to get back to that. And that my prayer time with the Lord was lacking. I forget who it was that said, if you want to humble a man, just ask him about his prayer time seems like all of us feel like we come up short. It got mentioned in Sunday school this morning, too. You know, but, um, but one thing that hit me as I, I shared this at, at a prayer meeting a couple weeks ago, the Lord's Prayer has six distinct topics in it, I think, if I counted right. You can probably divide, slice it and dice it a little differently if you want. But that's one for every work day of the week. And then on Sunday, you can spend that time thanking the Lord. But, um, but take one of those topics and put that at the top of your page for each day of the week. Just a practical idea here for spending time with the Lord because he will take that and God will remind you of something to do. Um, he will go work in the people's lives that you're praying for. Um, take, your, take the people in your family, your fellowship, your school, your friends, people in your life, and divide them up into six different days. And so each day you have, that way in a week's time, you have prayed for the people in your sphere of influence. Um, just an idea for helping us in our, um, I know I need help in remembering. It helps me to remember. <clears throat> I was blessed. How do we pray for each other? <clears throat> In Ephesians chapter 3, see one of Paul's prayers, verse 14. We can pray this, and the things that look impossible are answered in this prayer. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. 
So that's something to pray for one another. I pray that Robert would be strengthened by God's Spirit in the inner man. Well, today. If we were all praying that for each other, do you think God would do something? I believe he would. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, that's the foundation, the foundation is love. By faith. That we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, length, and depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ. That we would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. That got talked about this morning. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That each one of us, we pray for each other, be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That is such an encouraging passage. That is Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. What is the plan to accomplish the work for the burden that God has placed on my heart, that he has placed on your heart? God's work begins where my ability ends. And so if I say, well, I come up short, well, that's okay. That's where God's work begins, is where my ability ends. This looks impossible. Verse 20, what is the thing that is beyond my power? Now to him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. So we can see this thing that's too big for us and pray that that can happen, and then God goes even beyond that, even beyond what I can even think possible. I think Nehemiah was facing a situation like that. It was beyond his ability, beyond his resources. Um, you know, some of the other, other men that had gone to be um, the governors before him, they were allowed to tax the people, and so they did. And the people were in bad shape because of the taxing. Um, but looking at it according to knowledge, can a governor go and fix things without resources? That's what Nehemiah did. He said, I'm not going to tax the people. They don't have the money for it. And he went. And I think the king is the one that stepped in. I'm sure much beyond his, um, Nehemiah's um, wildest dream. <clears throat> So it goes beyond what we can ask or think. Nehemiah 2, verse 7, as he's sharing with the king, he says, Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. Nehemiah was thinking ahead to how this thing would work out. There is a verse in Romans um, 12, 8. 
that I think I read in NASB maybe it was and it struck me differently in the King James here it says or he that exhorteth on exhortation he that giveth let him do it with simplicity he that ruleth with diligence he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness I see Nehemiah being a diligent leader um but the word that was used in the other translation was exertion. Um, if your calling, your gifting is leadership, do it with exertion. Put effort into it. It takes effort. I see Nehemiah putting effort into it. <clears throat> and then again in verse 12, when he gets to Jerusalem and he says, And I rose in the night, and I and some of few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well. And he goes on to say what he did, and he viewed all the things that he had been told about. And he went to survey the situation. But he was putting effort into it. It took, he was doing all this even before the people knew why he was there. And when God lays a burden on your heart, it's not to just go talk to everybody about it, but start doing the work. Start putting effort into it and figuring out um, what needs done and come up with a plan. And then in verse 18, um, Verse 17, may I start there. Then said I unto them, a, well, 16, and the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, and we be no more a reproach. So this wasn't the first thing that he did. But he knew what God had called him to. He had put work into planning and, for, and looking it over. And then he says, there's a challenge. He puts the vision out there. Come, let's go do this work. This is maybe a poor example. It's in the physical. But I had to think of, I have um, decided I need to start exercising again since my surgery. And I haven't yet until this past week. I finally did. But um, my goal, you know, I have a goal. Like in six weeks, I'd like to go skiing. I haven't skied in four or five years. And I know if I went now, I'd come back. I probably wouldn't enjoy the day. And I'd come back maybe hurt worse than I am now. And I'd at least be in pain. But I can look ahead. And I didn't need to tell anybody, I guess I just did, but I can show up on the ski slopes and none of them know what has gone into my preparation. I could either be prepared or I could be unprepared. Now, my goal is bigger than just going skiing. I know that my body needs it. I need it for the exercise. I need it um, for living life and fulfilling my responsibilities. But I have a goal in mind that's kind of a minor one. If I don't go skiing in six weeks, that's fine. That's not the main goal. Um, 
But that's a little bit of a picture. Nehemiah here had gotten a, a vision, a burden. He knew what the goal was, and he was working toward it long before anybody knew about it. Um, and the challenge is, what am I doing in quiet now to fulfill the things that God has laid on my heart? What am I doing today that no one knows about? I thought of Matthew, you know, in Matthew, um, is it 6, where Jesus says, go into your closet and pray as he's teaching them. Um, am I doing the closet time that nobody else knows about? That's the preparation. That's the groundwork um, for fulfilling God's call on our lives. You know, and I must say, <laughs> as I look back over the years, <laughs> that's kind of gone like that, you know, for me. You know, it's like, yeah, it's good for a while, and then, oh, something comes up, and, and I get distracted. If we've been distracted, then get back to what God is, what is most important, what's laying the groundwork for doing the work of God. <clears throat> As Nehemiah was here, Casting the vision before these men. In verse 17, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, and we be no more a reproach. And then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good unto me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. So he put the vision out there and called them, and they responded. And so at the right time, as God is working, and you've done your homework, and you cast the vision out there, there will be people that say, yes, we will join you in that. I had to think of Ecclesiastes 11.1. You know, and putting a vision out there, that can be risky. Because... Um, we don't know what God's going to do and how this is going to work out, and it might look impossible. But in Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1, I think this, is, um, this verse is used in investing. Um, Cast your bread on the water, and after many days it will come back to you. Um, but that's what casting a vision is, too. It's risky to put it out there. And we as men are called to do that, especially is to, this is what God's calling us to do. Come, let's do it. <clears throat> Don't let fear stop us or our lack of resources, whether that's strength or time or money. Let's trust God to work out the details. What is the good work? <clears throat> they said, so their hands were strengthened for this good work. What is the good work? that God is calling me to do, that I need to strengthen my hands to do. Does it seem overwhelming? Do I just say, well, I have no idea how I'm going to do that. I guess I'll just forget about it. No, we need to strengthen our hands to do the good work. What is the good work that God has called you to do, that he has called me to do? 
I think the, the work here that they're talking about is restoring what was torn down by the enemy. And the captives were taken away. And they're restoring and building up a people again to live in this land and be a testimony to God, of God. And so what is the good work? It's a work of restoration and building up edification like it was in the Sunday school lesson this morning. And then there's a word in verse 19. You know, so they're encouraged. Let's strengthen. You know, their hands were strengthened for this good work. But, and isn't that how it almost always happens? The very next word is but. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn. So after this high point, this mountaintop, we've got a job to do and we're going to do it. And we're all excited about it. And then the enemies come. These men were not a part of the children of God. They were hired by the king to govern the area. And they would bring in other people. And so these, these um, and we see later, just in the next verse, You know, well, in verse 19, what is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? And then, I, then answered I them, and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. You have no right here. Am I telling the devil that he has no right here? I'm a believer in God. You are a believer if you are a believer, the enemy has no right. There's no portion. And it reminded me of a song back in, I don't know, I think we learned it when we were first married, one of those early years. But um, Jesus has all authority here in this place. He has all authority here. For this habitation was fashioned for the Lord's presence. All authority here. Satan has no authority here in this place. He has no authority here. For this habitation was fashioned for the Lord's presence. No authority here. Do I tell the devil that enough when he comes? When that but comes, I say, you have no portion or right no memorial in Jerusalem. I'm a child of God. This is the city of God. You have no right here. <clears throat> Our struggle is a spiritual struggle. It's against spiritual forces, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. <clears throat> Evil, wickedness, in high places. But... <laughs> The enemy will come, he will mock, he'll bring false accusations. He said, will ye rebel against the king? Nehemiah had letters from the king. He was not rebelling against the king. But the enemy will say lies to try and bring discouragement. Why believe his lies or why run to truth? We allow the enemy victory when we take his words as truth. 
how do I know that the enemy's lying? How will you know that the enemy's, that what he's saying, that it is from the enemy and that it's a lie? How, how do we know that? That's why we have to be lovers of the truth. Because God's Holy Spirit will tell me things too. And so not every voice that I hear, not every word that I hear is going to be from God. And not every word that I hear is going to be from the devil. So how do I know the difference? We need to be lovers of truth. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What does the Father say? Does the Father ever say that you're worthless, no good, and you just messed up and you're never going to make it again? The Father doesn't say those type of things. So when we hear that, we know that's from the enemy and that's a lie. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Why do I want to be a seeker of truth? Because that's the only place where there's freedom. It's not some mental assent to God that he requires of me so that he can be happy. Truth is a person that I get to live with who leads me in freedom and out of captivity. The world will let a man go to hell quietly and never try to stop him. The world will never let a man go to heaven quietly. They will do all they can to turn them back. J.C. Ryle. Um, But as you go along with life, you'll see that. If you're going along with their schemes, that's no problem. They'll let you go to hell quietly. But as soon as you take a stand, there's a reaction. The world will do all they can to keep you from going to heaven. Had to think here how the enemies, these three men and their people, they did not have a correct perception of what was going on. And I think I talked about this last time, but they said, would you rebel against the king? Well, that wasn't true. That wasn't what was happening. We are told to seek understanding. These men were not understanding at all. Nehemiah had understanding. He had spent time with God. And even though the perception around him by looking around him it would say otherwise God was telling him this is what I want you to do you can rebuild this I'm going to provide and so there was a as Nehemiah changed his perception to match God's reality then that's understanding When my perception agrees with reality, that's understanding. And that's our goal, is to have understanding. 
So the enemy is not going to have understanding because they are not interested in reality. They are interested in their own pocket. An example, we are told to those of us that are married to live with our wives according to knowledge, according to understanding. So I can have an idea of who I think my wife is. Um, I heard a story recently. This man was real excited. It was their first Christmas as a couple, and they saved the best gifts for last. So they each had a big gift for each other. And what did she give him? Fishing gear. So she gave fishing gear. She's living with him in an understanding way. She knows that he's going to enjoy this fishing gear. But, so he gives the gift to her, and he's all excited, you know. And she opens it up. And it's a, it's a um, membership to a gym. He would have been excited about that. But his wife was in tears. So there was a lack of understanding there. Something needed to change, and he said it did over the years. But as we live in a, with knowledge, with our wives, with the people around us, our perception of them and what their needs are changes. And if it does, and that's our goal, it needs to, but it doesn't always, does it, in many cases. But our perception and reality need to join up. Who is my wife really? And then when my perception and I change it to match the reality of who God has made women to be, who God has made my, my wife to be, as that joins together, that's understanding. Live with the way and understanding. Here, they did not have understanding. They were not interested in God's ways we need to be humble and to be interested in God's ways. Second Thessalonians 3.3. 3. I'd like to read some of these as we think about the spiritual warfare that's going on and that we face every day. That no man... This is 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are pointed thereunto. As we are facing struggles, realize this is what happens in life. I'm not going to give up just because I am facing a trial. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. If something is casting itself against the knowledge of God, then it's not coming from God. If something is calling for a disobedience to Christ, then it's not coming from God. It's not of God. But our weapons are not of this world, but they are mighty. As I read these verses yesterday, I was really 
It was an encouragement. And in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So stay awake. Don't get drunk. Be in control of your um, senses so that the enemy can't get you. There's so many things that happen when people are drunk and they don't know what they're doing. I mean, you just read the news. You can see it every, probably on a daily basis, but stuff happens. Here, we're being encouraged to uh, stay aware, stay in control of your senses so that the devil can't use you to do this stuff, this sin. Whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Keep resisting the devil because our brothers and sisters around the world, you are a part of a family. We're not alone. I'm not sitting in my house. You're not sitting in your house alone. We are part of a big family that covers the world. And he's saying, remember that. So keep resisting. Don't give in to the enemy. John 10.10. 10. The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus said, I, I came so that you would have abundant life. Abundant life. And that's not a joke. That is quite a promise. I am come that they might have life, abundant life. And then John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So as we face the enemy, remember Jesus wins. Jesus wins. He has already won, and that's not going to change. No matter what he tells you. If the enemy says that in some way questions Christ's authority and his victory, then it's of the enemy. It's not from God. His lies lead to death. Hmm. How do we guard as we work? I think I might put that into the, into the next section. We are called to be ready to be a bridegroom, spiritually ready to meet our groom, to meet Christ when he returns. 
Going back to Nehemiah 2, verse 20, and closing out that chapter. Nehemiah's answer to the enemy, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will rise and build. The God of heaven, he will prosper us. That is a statement of faith. Is that my statement of faith? The God of heaven will prosper us. Nehemiah was doing God's work. He was pressing ahead with it in the face of opposition. And he said, God will prosper us. That's quite a statement when it looks like the enemy could just run you over and kill you. And your work would be done. The God of heaven will prosper us. What do I have difficulty trusting God for today? What wall do I have to build? What situation do I need to say, the God of heaven will prosper us? George Mueller said, the minister whose reliance on God, oh, it was describing him, George Mueller, but he said, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Faith begins where my power ends. You don't need great faith. You know, the question's out there. Do I have enough faith for this to happen or that to happen? Do I have enough faith? How do you ever decide if you have enough faith? Jesus told a story about a grain of a mustard seed. That's all the bigger it needs to be. So you don't need great faith. You only need faith in a great God. Little faith in a strong plank will carry you over the stream. So little faith in a strong plank will carry you over a stream. Great faith in a rotten plank will put you in it. So what's my faith in? Is my faith in a great God? I often have to think, and I, I still don't know why this is about me, but when I build a new set of stairs, the first time I walk on it, I'm like, is it going to hold me up? I just built it. I should know that it was good, right? I don't, I don't understand that about me. But every time I walk gingerly the first time up those stairs. So I don't have, my faith isn't very big. But they've helped me every time. So sometimes our faith isn't very big. But if I know that they've been built right, if my faith is in a great God, it's not going to dump me in the stream. So we can still take those steps that are kind of hesitating, kind of gingerly. But if my faith is in God, it's, I'm not going to get dropped. There's a song that a group sang at a school I went to when, when I was in grade school. 
It's called One Solitary Life. And I think I'll read this in closing. Um, you may have heard this. It was a sermon from the early 1900s. This is the abbreviated form, and it's been used in, in a song since. But I did not write the man's name down that preached that sermon. One Solitary Life. Here's a man who was born in an obscure village as a child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one, one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. Another betrayed him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon the cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the center of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched and all the navies that were ever built and all the parliaments that have ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put, all put together have not affected the life of man upon the earth as powerfully as has this one solitary life. That's our Lord. Amen.